Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. What's up, my friends? Thank you guys for tuning in to this episode here on Stand Strong in the Word podcast. As today, we are now entering Acts chapter 19, and the title is Paul Faces Demonic Warfare in Riots in Ephesus. And so, yes, as we continue to take a look at Paul's life, we actually see that there's a lot of transition that he's going through, not just in terms of location, but seeing the degree of spiritual warfare and the increase of violence that comes. Now, wherever you are at listening or watching this podcast, there's no question that as the days are drawing to an end, when the day is approaching, the Bible says, and again, that's our Christian theology, my friends, is that we look up, we anticipate the return of Christ for his church. And there's one thing for sure that Jesus said that will continue to increase uh, before he returns. The first is rumors of wars. And that is not just, you know, war against Iran and America, for example, uh, or Iran against Iraq or Iraq against, you know, Israel or America. That is true, but it's ethnic group against ethnic group. And so even in America, as I'm recording this right now, we are seeing um, the division because of one's color and the hostility. And then there's always going to be people in that camp. There's going to be some people who are going to be protesting um, solemnly, respectfully uh, within their constitutional rights. And then there's other people who are going to take it to extreme and cause uh, harm and do, uh, you know, be partaking of looting and things like that. And so we are seeing that in the course with Paul's ministry as well. Remember, there's a great hatred with the Jewish people. There's a great, you know, that they have for the Gentiles. Um, as well. So it's like the Romans hate the Jews and the Jews hate the Gentiles and it's back and forth. And then you got a, a Christian like Paul, who is a Christian now, uh, who was a former Pharisee, who is a Jew, who's a Roman citizen. And so he's, he's in the mix of all this stuff. But nevertheless, despite the fact that Rome is in power, and even as we're listening right now, wherever you're at, I don't know what your government looks like. There are different people from all over the world that listen to this podcast. But we do know that most of America right now is under heavy attack. But there are people listening right now that I know you come from a tyrannical uh, rule. You know, most of, of the world's history is under dictatorship. And that puts things in perspective. And so when we're looking at Acts 19 today, we have to realize that no matter who is in control, who's in power, wherever you live, there is a real enemy. His name is Satan. And he uses his kingdom. And he's the God of this age, the Bible says. He has the keys, if you will, to earth right now, where he's allowed to roam freely and to tempt us and to kill, still, and destroy. And he will use religions. He will start different religions. But what Satan will do is he will dominate the world by getting people to submit to certain things. And he'll do it, in some cases, violently. And that's where now we enter in Acts chapter 19. 
Now remember, this is the third missionary journey now. This is going to be going from AD 53 to about AD 57. This is marking from where we left things at in Acts chapter 18, verse 23. And we're going to go all the way to Acts chapter 21, verse 17. That marks the third missionary journey of Paul. Now remember, Paul revisited Galatia and Phrygia. So he goes, That was those are the travels he did in Acts 13 and 14 for his first missionary journey. But then he goes back at the end of his second missionary journey, 1,500 miles. And then he goes into Macedonia and to Greece in his second missionary journey. And Paul, he will remain in Ephesus for three years. And again, this is where he's going to write 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And during his three months in Corinth, he will write the book of Romans. So now a lot more letters are going to be coming out during this phase of time. So that's important to understand. So let's dive right into Acts chapter 19 uh, and, and look at verses 1 through 20, where Paul expands the gospel in Ephesus. It says here, and it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth. Now, remember, if you go back in Acts 18, there was an interlude there. And there's like a commencement where Luke is introducing Apollos and Aquila and Priscilla disciple him and they inform him. And so he's radically saved, if you will, to fully know Christ. And then so then now he's in Corinth and it says Paul passed through the inland interior country, the upper regions, and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. These were learners. These were followers. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the name, or excuse me, in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came. That's, that's the Greek word I wrote here, ekome. That means to arrive on them. And they began to speak, you know, or began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly. That means openly, freely, with confidence, reasoning, meaning formally engaging and arguing and persuading. That means to convince someone to believe them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn, that literally means refusing to believe defiant and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew. That means he departed. He moved away from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, 
and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So Paul travels north of Ephesus where Luke had left him back in chapter 18, verse 23, and he comes to Ephesus. Now remember, Ephesus, it was the heart of religious and political persuasion throughout the province of Asia. Now let's, let's, let's go back a little bit. In, in Ephesians 1, or excuse me, in the first missionary journey in, in Acts 13, 14, you have Paul with Barnabas and they're hitting many of the major uh, outlets, if you will, the smaller regions, the Galatians, the Phrygias, right? And the Durban Lystras. And then you see this escalation now into bigger markets. And he's in Athens in the second, second missionary journey, set his eyes. He wants to get to Ephesus prior to this. He wasn't able to get there. Then he goes there a little bit, but then we're going to see today that he's going to fix his eyes on Rome because he goes from Athens and then his second missionary journey to Corinth, he's in Ephesus a little bit, but then he has to go to Jerusalem because he, he completes his vow and he wants to get there by Pentecost, we're told. But then he goes back through the small areas, goes back to Antioch, and now he comes to Ephesus and he's going to spend uh, his time in Ephesus for three years. And of course, he's going to be going throughout the province of Asia. And then he's going to go to Rome. So you see the progression that's taking place here that Paul's having in the ministry. Now, as he's traveling, he encounters these people who are disciples of John the Baptist. These are followers of him, we're told. Now, remember, John, John's fame, they, it grew beyond Israel. We see that in Luke chapter 20, verses 5 through 7. Uh, you see mentioned that by Luke in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. And then you also see that with Apollos in Acts chapter 18, verses 23 through 28. However, these disciples, though, they seem to have only received the rite of purification. So it's a little bit different than Apollos. Seemed like Apollos knew more about Jesus because all these people had received it to this point was a rite of uh, uh, purification and nothing else. So yes, it's kind of similar to Apollos in Acts chapter 18, verse 25. Now, Paul, he, he's saying to them, hey, by what baptism? And so his explanation of John's baptism is a matter of preparation of the coming Messiah, Jesus that confirms the disciples that would come that he must decrease to Christ increase, but that's it. So these people are not Christians, if you will, in terms of knowing and receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we know, but if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is the Lord. So Luke, in essence, when he's describing these people and Paul lays hands on them, when he explains them the gospel and the spirit comes upon them and they begin to prophesy, in essence, what Luke is describing here is the regenerating work and power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of these men. And this is important for us to understand because remember, and again, in all due respect, I think to the quote-unquote evangelical Protestant Western mind, when people get saved, we oftentimes see them coming to the altar. Or we oftentimes, you're leading someone to Christ at the park or at Starbucks, and you don't see like, you know, the gushing of wind or or movement or the person jumps up and they begin to, um, you know, prophesy or start performing miracles. So when we're kind of seeing this, you know, I think sometimes Westerners tend to uh, avoid it because it's just way out of the ordinary of what we see today. And that's completely and totally wrong. 
what Luke is recording here is a regenerating, uh, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And as he indwells these people, one of the signs that's confirming their salvation now is that they're prophesying. Now, they went from the rite of purification, becoming Jews, to receiving the identification of being adopted in his kingship, according to Romans chapter 8. And so they began speaking in tongues and prophesying, meaning this was, again, they were a part, this was their sign. This was some of the gifts that they were using to be a part of the body of Christ. And you see that in chapter 2, member of Acts verse 4, and also Acts chapter 2 verse 11. We see prophecy mentioned and the signs in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, particularly in verse 22. And then we're told that the, he entered the synagogue and for three months he's speaking boldly and again, formally engaging them. So Paul spent a lot of time in prep work to convince the Jews in the synagogue. According to the, the records that Luke puts forth, this right here, this synagogue and the one in Corinth are the two longest stints that Paul spent in a particular synagogue and location. So he is masterfully articulating. I always thank you guys when, you know, you think about the road to Emmaus and you think about him reasoning day in and day out when you go to Acts chapter 17 in Thessalonica. And then you think about the time he had in the school of Tyrannus that we saw in Acts chapter 18. And now you see him as he enters the synagogue for three months and he's persuading them, he's convincing them He's engaging them freely with confidence. I'm thinking, man, wouldn't that be great to hear the messages that Paul was giving? But notice they, that many of them in verse 9, they became stubborn. They were refusing. They were defiant. They were refusing to believe. And so after being rejected by the Jews, Paul, again, what he does at this point, what I was referring to, he goes to the hall of Tyrannus then. He's saying, okay, you're going to kick us out of this location, uh, the Jews, again, kicking us out. I'm going to go use this place that Tyrannus used for philosophy, for rhetoric teaching that was being taught there. Now, obviously, at this point in time, there were classes that were going on. So kind of think about it like a university. And, and so Paul needs a certain location on, on this campus, if you will, right? And so he's probably during this siesta time, during the time where they would actually rest. And it's so cool when you go travel Europe, many people, particularly when we were in Italy, they have their siestas still during the afternoon time, maybe a little bit later than they would normally do, but it's so cool. Thousands of years later, they still take breaks during the day. So it was probably during this time at the Hall of Tyrannus, when they're on their siesta, Paul would say, hey, look, you want to bring your lunch, if you will? Come sit in and have a discussion. Let's do it. He did this for two years. So this shows you the success of the residents of Asia that were hearing the word of God. And notice they weren't just Jews, they were Greeks. So they're mingling together. So when you and I talk about getting two polar opposite views, not just in terms of an ideological position or political tribalism, but also you throw um, ethnicity into it. I mean, you got some major dividing points here, and yet they're coming to hear Paul. So Paul spends over two years teaching at the school of Tyrannus, and he's having a great impact with these people, the Jews and the Greeks. All throughout Asia Minor. Now, this is modern-day Turkey. Now, Turkey and Indonesia are, are, are some of those most populated Muslim unreached groups in the world. Now, it's likely that Paul's ministry during this time 
uh, was establishing churches in Colossae and also several of the churches that are actually mentioned, there's seven in particular that are mentioned in Revelation 7, or excuse me, Revelation 2 and 3. So it's, it's probably at this point as he's spreading the gospel in Asia, spending this time making disciples that many of the churches that we have, one being Colossae that he would later, of course, write a letter to, is taking place right here, right now. So we oftentimes when you just say, oh, he's just, you know, he's with the residents, he's ministering to these people. And we overlook that he's actually building churches at the same time. And so God is, we're told here by Luke that he does extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Now, this is a very tricky passage about handkerchiefs and aprons. You know, the sad reality is, I can't tell you how many false teachers, counterfeit teachers, these prosperity guys who take this passage and they send you a handkerchiefs. They'll send you, I'll never forget years ago, some of the uh, pastoral staff and I, I had ordered, you know, because I'd watched some of the stuff and I was doing research with a lot of these prosperity teachers. And so we, you know, we had to give a little bit of, you know, you had to give a donation in order to receive something. So we, I don't know, gave like a buck or two or something because I don't want to support their ministry, right? But I wanted to be able to see what this mail out thing was. And you literally had this uh, cloth like material that you, you unfolded and there was a circle. That's all it was. And then there's these instructions in the letter and saying, sit in the circle and chant these things with with oil and being prayed over by your fellow elders in the church and just a lot of heresy and saying that you'll be radically healed so if you have cancer if you have blindness or whatever you know if you have marriage problems get in the circle and have these people do these ritualistic things and you'll be healed but here what we see again those are false takes of scripture but what we see here is that god's power was revealed clearly through paul and it was, it was revealed in such a way, in such a mighty way that even, even his items that he possessed, like his, his, literally his sweat cloth, okay, that when people would touch them, they would be radically healed. Okay, this is in reference to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. Now, remember in similar fashion, remember when people were healed, they would reach out to Jesus and they, and if they even touched his garment, we're told in Mark chapter 5, 27 through 34. And remember even Peter's shadow, if it would fall upon somebody in Acts chapter 5, verse 15, they would be healed. And the point being, my friends, is that miracles were accomplished to point people to God, to glorify him, not to make profit. It's not about the big need here is what I uh, need healing from. The big need is not what you want to see fulfilled. What the, the, the focus here is on is on the Lord because Hebrews chapter two, verse three and four, the writer there says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God, notice, also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So that is the significance of this, is that Paul's at a point now, he's being rejected. He's working hard so he can continue to reason day and night, spending two years in the school of Tyrannus. He's not just this philosophical mind. I think a lot of times intellectually, we're so resilient and educated and grounded in some cases. I'm talking about, you know, people that study this kind of stuff, but spiritually we're dead. 
in some cases, people are not even converted to the truth that they have understand mentally in their mind. They have a good memory of things. They can recall things, but they're not radically transformed. Paul had it all because the Holy Spirit was moving in his life. He wasn't just a deep intellect. The man had the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit, even by people touching his skin, uh, carried away their sickness. Diseases left people like that. That's incredible. And you know what, my friends? I'm going to say something. That is unique to Paul right here, right now. That does not mean, as you see a lot of counterfeits, that I start saying, hey, this T-shirt that I'm wearing right now as I'm doing this podcast, you know, if you want to send us money, I'll take pieces of it. I'll pray over it. I'll anoint it. And I want you guys to put it on your forehead with a piece of tape. And if it falls off, you're not going to be healed because you don't have faith. Like using that as a way and just kind of feeding that. And there may be a lot of you guys say, that's ridiculous. I would never do that. But you know what? There will be a few and that's what it takes. It just takes a small few. And if, if my heart is bent on that and I'm using this passage to claim it and undermine the will of God, when it's the one he, that, who wills this to be done, these signs and wonders and these various mix, uh, miracles through the gift of the Holy Spirit, and I'm saying that I'm going to bestow this gift on you because I'm anointed, that's false. But as we see, when somebody takes a counterfeit, they can take it to extreme because ultimately their intent is not to glorify God. They want to make themselves look like they're this Marvel character that I have this amazing miracle thing because I'm close to God and you're not. So if you want to know God, if you want to be blessed, if you want to be healed, you need to receive something from me that quote unquote God has given me. That is false. And please hear me, my folks. If you have embraced some of that, you have to renounce it. Get get out of the demonic stuff because that's now where we're entering into these Jewish exorcists, these people who did things that were completely contrary to what Paul was doing in the ministry and to what we later, of course, see in the canonization of scripture. And I say that because it's so, I'm so sensitive about it because I've seen so many people get lost. They get side, not, not, not just a matter of being sidetracked, but they get sucked in to a false ideological position with miracles. For example, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not really saved. So you need to do this in order to be saved and then speak in tongues. And that's confirmation. And they take things out of context of scripture. Now, having said all that, that is, I'm going to say this in the affirmative, that does not mean that there are people who can't do the miracles that we see here in context. I believe when there's faith present and God through the power of his spirit is moving and he has anointed person like Paul, we know that he's an apostle. So the apostleship does not exist today, but that does not restrain or prevent God from doing what he and only he can do. Because remember, a miracle is a special act of God in his creation that he created and that he sustains. So we can't limit God. If God's going to use miracles the way that he used miracles here with Paul today and modern day, yes, let's not limit that. God does what he does without contradiction. And so that's what's happening. Now, of course, as we're seeing in context, that still applies today. There are going to be people who say, oh, I want some of that. Again, going back to a lot of these prosperity teachers. And so in this case, in context, it's the seven sons of Siva who hear about these things. Now, notice they're already practicing some stuff, and that's what's important. They take a certain practice of something, and they say, how can I embed this in Scripture like a cult will do, like 
Mormonism will do. They'll take a little bit of Christianity and then they make it into something else. And so the, sen the seven sons of Siva who were involved in exorcism, these were Jewish practitioners who were synchristic in their religious practices and influenced, I believe, by something that was circulating back then known as the Testament of Solomon. This was actually a book on incantations and exorcism. So again, they're taking some of that and formulating through Judaism. And now this new teaching that Paul's preaching, they thought they can just, the more that they knew that they can write down, uh, the more powerful they're going to be. Doesn't that remind you of somebody that we encountered early on in Paul's ministry? Or excuse me, in Peter's ministry in Acts chapter 8, 9 through 25. Remember Simon of Magus? Simon Magus and Bar-Jesus in Acts 13, 6 through 12 with Paul. So Peter encountered this, Paul encountered this, and now Paul's encountering it again. Now this phrase, I adjure you, so what they're, so the phrase here that Luke records, going back to the Testament of Solomon, they're attempting to recite the Lord's name with magical incantations to overpower evil spirits. So that's what it is. It's formulaic. And that's why when you get into these incantations today or repeat after me, or you have these seans, you guys, that is very demonic. You're opening the gate. All right. This is something you're not to mess around with. Now, this phrase Jewish high priest, more than likely their father was a pagan priest, but he gave himself this title falsely because again, he's, this is what you do, right? As a salesperson, when you're a counterfeit, you become like the people. So I have to have a Jewish title because there's Jewish people here. And of course, I'm a pagan because I'm also in, in, in this environment with a lot of the Greeks. And so this was a false title that he had. And they're all about money. But the evil spirit recognizes that the sons of Siva, they didn't truly know Jesus as Savior. Remember, we're told by the half-brother of Jesus in James chapter 2, verse 19, that even the demons believe and they tremble. We see when Jesus was on the island of the Gadarians, Gennesaret, that the one that was filled with the legion, they knew who Jesus was. And they knew that judgment is coming. So this is knowledge that fallen uh, angels, we refer to as demons, many of them are referred to as unclean spirits. They know things about Jesus that even here people think they know, but the demons know more than they do. Now, that does not mean they're saved. They have the knowledge of the truth. And they realize this, the, the, the evil spirit, I should say, realized that they had no authority of Christ. So their very own spells, this is what, is what people have to understand. The very own spells were derived from satanic ideas in the first place. And with, it fed right back into the evil spirit that they were trying to overcome. So it's literally like you want to protect yourself with a weapon, but you have the gun pointing at your own head. That's what this mysticism, this paganism all points back to, this Jewish exorcism points back to. Now a truly remarkable demonstration of repentance by the people though, is after hearing upon this and seeing that these Jewish exorcists whose father was this Jewish paganistic priest had no power against these evil spirits. And so they actually repent. The people repent. This mass revival causes these Ephesians to turn from worshiping their mother goddess Artemis. Now remember, Paul was just engaging in Corinth with Apollo and Aphrodite. The, the, the deity of the love goddess. And now Artemis is Diana the, of the Ephesians. It has this massive 
uh, uh, statue of her. And the temple devote, was so devoted to her. Uh, it, was, it, it was so big, you guys. It was at the time that Paul's here and for many years following was, was one of the seven wonders of the world. So again, the, the commerce, remember Ephesus was the hub, I said, religiously because of it being one of the seven wonders of the world because of their worship of Diana. And yet these people, they burn 50,000 pieces of silver. That's amazing. But remember, they were planting the seeds. They were investing. The authority of Christ was there. Paul was doing these miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit, who was, he's honoring the Lord. These people are trying to take advantage of it, just like people today, guys, are probably taking advantage of you. So this is a great reminder of seeing counterfeits because you know what is, what is the truth. And the product value that was the, the, uh, that in today's standards, they're, they're burning millions of dollars, which shows you the deep level of sorcery that the Ephesians were under. So you guys, when God sends you in some environments, it can be deep in sexuality. It could be deep into human trafficking. It could be deep into substance abuse or a combination of all of those. It could be deep in, in this case with sorcery. You have to understand the demographic that you're going in. When I travel around, I'm sensitive to, Lord, what is the dominating practice of the world led by Satan himself that is in this environment? What are some of the issues that the churches are struggling with that we're not necessarily struggling with in Charlotte, North Carolina? May that be a reminder to all of us to be sensitive where we go and the people that we interact with. And then it says, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Again, those are little phrases that Luke records throughout. He inserts these transitions because he's demonstrating the power and the influence of the gospel that continues to have over the people despite the spiritual warfare. So now let's jump into where Paul sets his eyes on Rome in Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 22. It says, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So Paul mentions receiving member financial gifts from Jerusalem in Romans chapter 15, 25 through 31. He also mentions it in chapter 16. He also mentions it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 through 9. So he's seeing the support that's coming during this period of time from Jerusalem. He's facing, he's going to go and face hardships in Jerusalem that we're going to see in the next chapter. As a matter of fact, in the next two chapters, he's going to be forewarned, but he knows that this is what he needs to do. But notice his focus is, I must see Rome. See, Paul purposed to reach Rome with the gospel of Jesus and gain access into Spain, according to Romans chapter 15, verses 22 through 24. And in the end, Paul will arrive back to Rome as a prisoner and he will eventually die. So even though we are fixated on something that we feel that God has compelled us to do, like Paul here, we're purposed to do it, to reach a people group with the gospel. We know that's what we're called to do, but we don't know all the details. Paul will get there. Paul will write the most elaborate intellectual, intellectually written uh, letter to the Romans. 
but it's not going to go down the way that he thought. But you know what? In the end, he knows because he says in the end in Second Timothy chapter four that I'm a I'm a an, an offering. He's pouring himself out. And so verse 22, having sent into Macedonia two of the helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So Erastus and Timothy are sent ahead into Macedonia to prepare things for Paul. Now, this individual Erastus, he's an important Corinthian figure. He's mentioned in Romans 16, verse 23. He's mentioned again later, the last letter that Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20. And apparently, he was a city director of public works because we have an inscription that was discovered in Corinth. Now, the IVP New Testament commentary series writes, quote, Luke seems to be declaring Paul's conviction by the power of the Spirit that is God's will for him to continue pursuing his calling by preaching the gospel in Rome. Once the northeastern portion of the Mediterranean basin is evangelized, there will be no more room for the apostle to the Gentiles to work. What better way to fulfill a calling to all the nations, to kings, in the small and the great, than to proclaim the message of the kingdom at the very center of it all, the capital of the empire. Through his converts in centrifugal fashion, he can then reach to the ends of the earth, even the regions of the West, including Spain, which he also hoped to evangelize personally, end quote. So you see the great significance of where Paul is at. So now let's jump to the third and final thing here in Acts chapter 19, verses 23 through 41, where a riot breaks out in Ephesus. It says here in verse 23, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Remember, that was the name for Christianity going back to Acts chapter 18, verse 26. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that no one in Ephesus, only in Ephesus, but in almost in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence she whom the, all of Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Aristocarts, that's the noble families who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Verse 32. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here 
who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. All right, so there's a lot there in verses 23 through 41 about this rioted, this rioters who are going after Paul, led by the silversmith Demetrius. So let's break this down, this portion. So here we see right off the bat in verse 23, about this time, there's this disturbance breaks out against the way. Now remember, Paul had another riot that broke out in Philippi when he cast out the demon from the slave girl in Acts 16, 16 through 24. Now in this case, notice the silversmiths, they're responding to the public burning of the magic arts. So they lose profit in Philippi in Acts 16 because Paul casts out the demon from the girl. So the fortune telling, that knowledge that that demon had in the city was gone. Now here, you're seeing millions of dollars being burned. So they're worried that their livelihood is going to be thrown out because, you know, quite frankly, they're fearful that the people are going to turn away from idolization of Artemis. Now, that's another important point that we need to, to touch on. When I was talking about counterfeits, how they deceive, another thing that people do is they need you to be blinded. Don't ask questions. We do the thinking for you. This is our society and you have a system that's built around it that people have their power and people have their influence and people have their money. And so if, if anything's going to call that into question, they have to do whatever necessary to, to put an end to it. So in this case, Demetrius, we're told here in verse 24, who made replicas of the statue of Artemis in the temple, he's turning, he's turning against Paul because he's defending the livelihood that comes from worshiping Artemis. Now it's believed at this point, you know, to, just to, we can have a proper backstory of what they're referring to. It's believed that a meteorite at some point in time prior to this, remember this is in the early 8050s, resembling a multi-breasted woman, you can actually look it up online, came down from heaven and thus that became the object of worship for the Ephesians. Then of course, people like Demetrius and others, they just, they just made it look more humanistic, right? With multiple breasts. So this meteorite came and they thought that was a goddess from heaven. And that's how this location became what it became to the point where an open air amphitheater that was built on the slopes of Mount Pion held over 20,000 people who would gather in honor of worship of Artemis. So Paul, seeing the crowd, and he wants to engage and speak to them. Now, this is what's important to note is in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, Paul actually describes the turmoil that he and his companions endured during this time of the riot. This is what he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. 
end quote. So that gives you some insight that at this time, what we're just seeing is that Paul sees the crowd. Oh, I've handled this before. Yeah, I was in Philippi, you know, when this all went down and they tried to worship me and Barnabas before, you know, and we refused it. So, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an expert when it comes to this kind of stuff. No, he's afraid. He's burdened beyond belief, he says. He says, we received the sentence of death. So Paul's looking around you guys at this time and he's thinking, there's no way out of this, but I trust the Lord. And if I have one last opportunity to share the gospel, to try to convince these people about who Jesus Christ is, remember knowing Stephen, Stephen who was martyr for his faith and said, hey, you know what? I'm going to speak the truth as he's being stoned and saying, Father, forgive these people. They're ignorant. Forgive them of their hatred. They don't hate me in the end. They're not rejecting me in the end. They can kill me in the body on earth, but I'll go be with you. Them killing me makes me alive. So it's like they, they lose in the end. And so Paul's like, he, he, he gets that, but he's afraid. And it says here, the disciples would not let him. So Paul's new converts here, they, they knew that this was a severe situation. That these rioters, and they meant business. Remember, this big business. So they meant business that they're going to take this guy's life. So they're saying, listen, it's best that you don't jump in this situation. Great, Paul, about your boldness and wanting to take this opportunity. But let's be smart here. Now, some cried out all the more and causing confusion. So like most riots, many in the crowd, they didn't even know why they were there. They didn't know why they were demonstrating. And they just see a bunch of chaos. And so they want to be a part of it and take advantage of it. Now, despite the freedoms the Jews experienced in Ephesus, there still remained a deep level of anti-Semitism in the Greco-Roman culture. So as I was mentioning in the previous podcast, you're going to continue to see the religio lacida, yes, that Christianity was under the guise of Judaism, so they let them occupy and practice their religious beliefs. But there's a growing stir against the Jews. There'll be battles, there'll be wars, obviously, there'll be fought. You think of the slaughtering of Masada after the destruction of the temple or prior to the destruction of the temple. But you also see this growing hatred with Jews who are Messianic Jews we refer to as today, right? So the Greco-Roman culture, they had a disdain for Jews. And again, when we talk about anti-Semitic, people who are anti-Semitic today or anti-Semitism, we see it flourishing even in this time. The Jews now, they're trying to use Alexander to speak to the crowd. So their efforts to try to dismiss all the stuff um, as a way to disassociate, disassociate themselves from Paul, who is a Jew and his companions to say, Hey, look, we hate your guys's guts, but we hate these people even more. And again, it's like, you know, your enemy of your enemy is your friend. And that's what they're trying to employ, uh, that type of tactic here. Now the city clerk addresses the mob we're told, and it's by sounding off that they're in violation of creating a riot and that there is no evidence that Gaius and Aristarchus, Aristarchus, have blasphemed or robbed anything sacred belonging to Artemis. So he's letting them know, like, I hear what you guys are saying, but that's not what's happening. And the mob, though, continued to make a scene. And they're jeopardizing their favorability with Rome because if they're doing things that are out of order, because that's one thing about, you know, Roman law, you do not push the envelope. You don't, you don't skirt to the edge and step over the line when you're told not to by Rome. And that's what they're doing here. And so rightly, the city clerk is saying, guys, we have 
uh, pro-councils, we have order for you to follow. You can't just take it to the streets and to do this sort of thing. So he's saying if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen um, have a complaint against anyone, go to the courts. Now, I think that Luke inserts this account of the city clerk for many reasons. One, Luke records this incident and talking about the city clerk because it shows that Paul and his companions, they were not being disrespectful to the Ephesians' way of life. This is important because I actually use this passage of scripture when going on mission trips or teaching trip or teaching groups going on a mission trips about do's and don'ts, that your tactic is not to go into, let's say, a Muslim nation and be disrespectful to their way of living. Paul was not being disrespectful. And I think that's why Luke is making mention of this. Number two, the city clerk recognized it was the mob who were breaking the law and not Paul, Gaius, and Aristarchus. And that's another thing that's important. When you and I travel, when you and I engage with things, we need to be respectful of not just the religion and the customs, but also the laws of the land. Now, when I say that, that does not mean that you surrender all rights as a, as a child of God that undermines God himself for a humanistic, you know, legislated law. Um, three, the people of Ephesus feared Rome and didn't want to risk losing favor with Rome. So that was really the big things here. It, it, it was not necessarily looking at Paul and his companions as people who were being disrespectful in the culture. And that's a huge lesson that we need to take away as well today. That when God sends you to a place, you need to be respectful to the people there respectful for the foods that they eat, the temples obviously that are demonic. Um, and you know that, so you have to be prayed up, filled with the spirit and the mighty power of God, Ephesians 6 verse 10. That's where our strength comes from, not ourselves. But also realizing that there is gonna be conflict when we face it. And there are gonna be people, you guys, who are gonna take a form of Christianity and they're gonna start proselytizing other people. They're gonna start spreading that false teaching, that false doctrine, and people, sadly, will um, surrender to it. They will buy into it. And so we have to be, you guys, uh, like Paul, we have to be this bold, confident, well-trained, well-equipped, fill-the-spirit Christian who's out there engaging the culture uh, for the love of Jesus because we love people. If you and I care enough about people, we will do the things that Paul did Maybe not to the degree, to the level, obviously, that's unique to him as an apostle, but that does not negate our responsibility for us to do things out of the ordinary, to do things that are, are extraordinary. I believe that God wants to take your life, as you're listening to me right now, as you're watching or listening, God wants to take your life, my friend. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, believe in the scriptures that we just read here today and live it out for the glory of God. So I pray that's a huge blessing to you guys. As always, you can drop me an email if you guys have any questions or prayer requests at info at standstrongministries.org. Go to our website, standstrongministries.org. All of my books, information, articles are there. You could check out my YouTube channel at Jason P. Jimenez, uh, or you could just put in my name, Jason Jimenez Apologist, Jason Jimenez Pastor on YouTube, and my channel will come up with different things. And take advantage of those things, you guys. There are resources out there, books, articles, videos, this podcast to help you continue to stand strong in your faith. So thank you guys for watching. Thank you for listening. And until next time, keep standing strong, my friends. For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at standstrongministries.org. Thank you for listening. 
and keep standing strong in the Word of God.